You're listening to another episode of Lords of Limited with your hosts, Ben Worney and Ethan Sachs. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Worney, and joining me on the line is Ethan, one of the cool kids on Twitch, Sachs. Your stream has exploded this week. How does it feel? It feels great. It feels confusing. Uh, I don't really know what to attribute the growth in viewership to, but I don't want to jinx anything. It was a very, very exciting week on Twitch for me. I had almost double viewership than I normally do on all five days this week. So thank you to everyone for uh, for tuning in. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, it was a blast. You had a you had a day there where People just went nuts subbing. I got caught up in the frenzy. Gift, yeah. Gifted five subs to your channel. It was crazy. You did. Yeah, you were part of that hype train for sure. Yeah, it was a really great week. How about you? I, I know you were at, had a busy week with work. Did you get uh, some good streams in as well? Got some good streams in as well. I did the grind to Mythic. I also took a two-day hiatus from Magic. <laughs> almost almost didn't play Magic for 48 hours because I was so tilted by best of one, which normally doesn't happen to me. Yeah, you're usually pretty good i mean there you know there's like the why me stuff that's i think a sort of a meme at this point in your stream you're you're pretty good at, at managing tilt but uh best of one can really get the best of you here in uh in arena yeah it's usually good natured why me i was legitimately frustrated and angry <laughs> yeah definitely well we're gonna get to that in a little bit as perhaps our uh our title is spoiling here diamond is forever both you and i i mean i think really anyone on the grind to mythic as we both got to mythic this week on arena through best of one uh, i think a- anyone on that grind experiences the the diamond plateau that you and i did for sure all right so we have probably maybe a less focused episode than we have in the past couple of weeks you know we went hard on cycling hard on companions and i think you and i just want to have an opportunity to talk about our experiences with the format. We've been playing Ikoria a ton, and I think both our experiences on Magic Online and Arena are going to lead to some pretty interesting discussions, and we'll just sort of let you all know where we're at in sort of this like state of the format-ish style episode. But before we get into any of that, got to talk about that Patreon, Ben, patreon.com slash Lords of Limited is where you can go to give back to the show if you so choose. We have a bunch of reward tiers there. Everybody who donates gets access to the Discord. You can get access to our show notes in advance of the episode release. You can get access to our deck picks and draft logs. Ben and I keep a whole spreadsheet of all that goodness. You can check in on that. You can get access to a sort of private part of the Discord where uh, really after our announcement last week, a lot of folks have been using it, which makes me super happy. You get a direct line to me and Ben if you want some advice on deck techs, that sort of thing. And then we even offer uh, coaching for our highest tier donations. So all of that information is at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Lords of Limited. And actually, just a quick, quick shout out. We also have a website. I don't know if folks know, lordsoflimited.com. Clean and easy. That's your one-stop shop for all things Lords of Limited, our Twitch streams, our YouTube channel, our Aquaria tier list, contact us, all that good stuff is there for you, our, all of our episodes, of course. Um, but back to the Patreon, just want to make sure that we shout out each and every new patron the first week that they join. And this week, we are welcoming Lezek, Simone, Scott, Travis, Violet, Sam, Schneeky, Michael, Trey, Josh, Dag, Otto, Augustelli, Nigel, Kevin, Timothy, Sven, Benjamin, and Vince. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We really appreciate your support. Thank you so much to all our new patrons. Benjamin there at the end got me a little bit. Every time I hear Benjamin, I still think I'm in trouble. I get the old <laughs> I get the old Benjamin Thomas Werney. You know things aren't going well. All right. That's I kind of remember that for when uh, when I feel like you're in trouble. You've got the let me ask you this, and I'm gonna I'm gonna stick you with the old Benjamin Thomas Werney one of these days. <laughs> All right, so we we didn't end up doing a roundtable last week, and I missed it, Ben. We didn't end up doing it for the uh, companion episode. Felt like just discussing the companions was probably a bit more useful. But this week, we're going to dive back into a draft that I had on Magic Online this week. Ben, are you ready to take a seat? Please. All right, so pack one, pick one, cards in consideration. Actually, right off the bat, I'm interested in talking to you about these two common cycling payoffs, Snare Tactician versus Dranith Stinger. I believe in our cycling episode, we ranked Stinger higher because it's both an enabler and a payoff, and it's a two drop, not a three drop. But I got to say, I think Snare Tactician is a lot scarier. Yes, I agree. But I think Stinger is such a more flexible card. It, it does a good job in so many more decks than snare tactician does in my opinion if i'm in cycling and i have the choice between three tacticians and three stingers i would prefer three tacticians but while i'm in getting into the deck i prefer drana stinger yeah that's a really good point it's a much more flexible card like snare tactician basically only goes in cycling and then if you end up in like a white 
X, maybe white black humans deck with a cycling package, then it's fine. But yeah, that card, things that don't have cycling on them, like tactician or reflection, are less flexible than things like, say, Stinger or Fox or Valiant Rescuer. So I, I like that. Definitely pack one, pick one, thinking Stinger is a higher pick. Uh, among the other commons, we've got a Deadweight and a Rumbling Rock Slide. So pretty decent spread of commons there. Moving on to the uncommons, only one to speak of, I'd say, is Trumpeting Gnar. That's the one green, blue, 3 3. Uh, it has mutate for three Simic Simic. And when it mutates, you create a 3-3 green beast creature token a card that i think i'm a little lower on than i was at the start of the format but still a card that i like quite a bit and then our rare is zerda the dawn waker speaking of our companions episode last week that's the one boros boros 3-3 companion the companion clause says each permanent card in your starting deck has an activated ability abilities you activate that aren't mana abilities cost two less to activate or two colorless less to activate this effect can't make it cost zero and it also has one tap target creature can't block this turn yeah this is a pretty juicy pack we've got here a lot of cards you would be okay first picking i think for me the companion is going to be the pick head over heels it's not going to be one that i'm going to force companioning but if the opportunity presents itself i would like to try to companion this but i'm going to make picks that don't go with companion along the way if there's a, a decent power level gap if the rare weren't in the pack i think think I would be on Drana Stinger over Trumpeting Gnar at this point in the format, mostly because I really want to be red and I really don't want to be mutating. But I think I think Gnar might be a more intrinsically powerful card in a vacuum. I'm not even confident about that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Gnar is sort of interesting because I feel like it's at its best in green blue. You know, unlike some of the other hybrid mutate cards that you feel like you know necropanther you can just put in a black deck i generally want to be mutating onto this not mutating this onto something because when you're mutating it onto something if that something doesn't also have mutate itself then you're spending five mana for a three three with like future benefits potentially but that's not exciting so i I do really feel like it is a gold card in the true sense of it being one green blue whereas some of the other hybrid ones like the boneyard lurker or whatever i feel like are a little bit more flexible yep i agree 100 percent. i do think i would take strain a stinger over it yeah i I think that's fair i i I did also take the companion here one that i have not companion yet so i was excited to try and do it and was as was maybe thinking about forcing it a little bit more than perhaps we suggested last week because of that opportunity to to get to play with the card so moving on to pack one pick two well we see sort of a, a groundhog day pack here, here i think it comes down to the same two cards Dranith singer as the best common and trumpeting gnar as the best uncommon in the pack the rare is missing well if i'm gonna do it pack one pick one I'm going to do it here, pack one, pick two, after I've already got Zerda in my pile for sure. Exactly. Yeah. So like, you know, you could have had Trumpeting Gnar into Trumpeting Gnar, but having Zerda into Dranith Stinger feels pretty dang good. Agree. Pack one, pick three, to go along with the cycling theme or to go along with the activated ability theme, you've got a memory leak, you've got a greater sandworm, that's a permanent that has cycling, so that has an activated ability on it to go with your Zerda. Um, but I think those are going to get edged out by an uncommon and a rare in the pack. So uncommon being Bastion of Remembrance, two and a black enchantment. When it ETBs, you make a 1-1 white human soldier creature token. And whenever a creature you control dies, each opponent loses a life and you gain a life. And the rare still in the pack is Slitherwisp, blue, black, black for a 3-2 with flash. Whenever you cast another spell that has flash, you draw a card and each opponent loses one life. Yeah, this is an interesting pick. It definitely boils down to Bastion or Slitherwisp. I keep saying I've never gotten into the blue, black flash deck. And this might be why, because (laughs) I think I would take Bastion over Slitherwisp here, mostly because I think it's a way more flexible card, probably less powerful, but certainly more flexible. I'm very happy playing black red and I'm very happy pivoting off of red if I need to to play some sort of black deck with Bastion in it. But that might just be a huge mistake. Do you think Slitherwisp is enough of a better card than Bastion that it's worth taking here? So I do i think like the blue black flash deck is something that comes together rarely but when it does is quite good and the reason it's quite good is because of slither wisp and so that's again why it comes together so rarely is because it's built around a rare um you know the the night bonder the blue black demir hybrid card that also has flash and makes your flash spells cheaper that's important to the puzzle as well but slither wisp is really the engine to turn on all of your flash cards as cantrips which is really really strong so i do think it's enough better than bastion of remembrance to take here so can i ask you a question and not like this isn't a let me ask you this this is me trying to understand the flash deck i found in many games in the format 
that I've been able to ignore my opponents drawing two cards a turn and sometimes even three cards a turn just because there's so many powerful things happening in the format. Is it really worth building your whole deck around this card, you know, when it can die, to, like dies to Doomblade or whatever, you know, your opponent can fire prophecy it and then you've got all these less than ideal blue black flash spells in your deck. You still think that's good enough? There's a real power and I this is this draft spoiler alert is up on our YouTube channel. So I drafted this deck on on YouTube and then you can see how the, the games play out. And the deck that we end up with here, and I won't spoil it just yet because I think there are a few interesting picks down the road. Um, but the deck that we end up here with the, the flash deck is, is less than great, I would say, um, just because we didn't quite get there. But even with most of your game plan operating at instant speed, it just gives you a lot of power. It lets you leverage your life total as a resource to say like, all right, I'm going to let this 2-2 hit me. And then I'm going to see if I want to have something get countered that my opponent plays or end of turn, I'm going to just flash out some, you know, beefy blocker like your crustacean, draw a card, or I get to, you know, hold up dark bargain and a counter spell. Like it open, not only do the flash cards play well with each other and play well with the slither wisp, you then get access to operating instant speed with removal, counter magic, some instant speed card draw. And then you really have like every turn you have three different things you can do and your opponent has less options throughout the games because they have to sort of test the waters first. They have to blink first because you can do everything in their end step. Right. That makes a lot of sense that it's a that it's a benefit that you're playing draw go magic essentially and you're really able to leverage your play skill and it makes your opponent's life a lot harder to make decisions. Yeah. I mean, like I, I played it. I, I, it's weird. I got like three Slitherwisp desks decks in the past like two days very very weird but like you know then you're leveraging stuff like you also get to play corpse turn as a way to protect or rebuy slither wisp or keep safe as a way to protect it or like you know at, at some point yeah you're just like corpse turn back a blitz leech cast it because it's a mana or two cheaper from my night bonders like there's just a lot of play yeah like you said you get to leverage your play skill quite a bit very cool so i did grab that here obviously bastion of remembrance you can't go wrong but i, I felt like bastion felt like well it wants to go with zerda but i can't play it with zerda because it doesn't have an activated ability so if I I'm, I feel like I'd rather go down to like strong build around rows, but may, maybe that's wrong. I think this is a super interesting pick. Pack one, pick four. Um, if you wanted to go down the flash route, there's a crustacean and a dark bargain at instant speed. If you wanted to go down the Zerda route, there's a keen sight mentor in the pack. That's two and a white for a one four. When it ETBs, you put a Vigi counter on target non-human creature you control, and you can pay one and a white, put a plus and plus one counter on each creature you control with vigilance. Yeah, crustacean dark bargain. I have to imagine are cards you're hoping to wheel in the flash deck. I, yes. I doubt you would want to spend a pick this high on them. So I think, you know, you're just looking at taking the best card in the pack, which I think is Keensight Mentor. Card can seriously do some work with some main servals. So as a spoiler, we're going to talk briefly about the Vigi deck, because I think this is perhaps the last, you know, uncharted territory in the format that you and I, and I think a lot of other folks, Corda Calls, are, are pretty high on. Keensight Mentor has been a roller coaster ride of card evaluation from the format, Ben. Are you, you back on the Keensight Mentor train? Yeah, I think it's probably the best of the mentors, yes. mostly because it activates for two and it works well with creatures that are cheaper than it and underdrafted. Mm hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Alert Heed Bonder and Frontland Felidar are the real engines. But honestly, if you get a couple Keensight mentors, the Vigi package or the Vigi deck is is pretty strong. It's great when it comes together. Yeah. And so I grabbed that here, not only because I think it's the best card in the pack, but also lets me keep my Zerda dream alive. And now moving on to pack one, pick five, we've got uh, we've got some options here. So Whisper Squad in the pack, one of the, the best commons, honestly, I'm just obsessed with this card. Uh also plays well with both of the routes we could go down. Um, it's really nice in a Slitherwisp deck because it gives you something to do at instant speed. Um, you know, if you, your opponent does does play something you don't want to counter, then you go, cool, I'll just use my mana to find another squad. It also goes well with Zerta because it has an activated ability. Beyond that, there's a checkpoint officer in the pack, a one on a white one, two that has one on a white tap target creature. You can make that activ activated ability a little cheaper with Zerta. And then at Uncommon, a bonder that I think you and I are not so high on, the Proud Wild Bonder, two Gruel Gruel for a 4-3 Trample. Creatures you control with Trample have, you may have this creature assign its combat damage as though it weren't blocked. I mean, I think that card's real. It's just so hard to get there. I've played against a deck that had two or three of them, and it was very good for my opponent, but... I think it's very few and far between. I like Whisper Squad as I think the best card in the pack here and going to go very well in your Slitherwisp deck. If I had the Bastion, also going to go well in that deck. Whisper Squad is very good. Yes. Yep. Just period. Whisper Squad is good. It's so funny. Like people keep asking like, well, do you need to have stuff with it? Is it just 
good on its own? And the answer is sort of like yes to both, because it's really hard for me to imagine a black deck that doesn't end up with a mutual destruction or a bushmeat poacher or, you know, wanting to hold up mana like a blue black Drago deck. Whisper Squad is great there just as like an intrinsically powerful mana sink or like a way to take a crew a bunch of one ones. Like it's just going to have synergy in your deck. Can we just talk about bushmeat poacher for a second? That card is a dream. Yes. Black gets at common what Parcel Beast does at Uncommon for Mutate after jumping through hoops. Like, Bushmi Poacher is essentially Parcel Beast. Maybe if you're, like, putting Parcel Beast on a Glimmer Bell, it's different. But yeah, they, they do very similar things. But the life gain is also so important. And and yet another card that embarrasses Pacifism and Capture Sphere. Card is so good. So, uh, you know, if you want to uh, check out how the rest of this draft went and the matches, you can go check out uh, the video on our YouTube channel. It's called Ikoria Draft Flash because, spoiler alert, even though I towed the line even more so towards the, the cycling portion or the Zerta por- portion, we got a pack one pick eight cunning night bonder. That's the, the Demir 2-2 with Flash spells with Flash you cast, cost one less to cast and can't be countered. And so that plus Slither Wisp makes me really want to draft the Flash deck. And so I ended up taking a pack two pick one capture sphere and then just not looking back and getting, like I said, not not the best version of the deck, but a serviceable version. And even the serviceable version uh, played out pretty powerfully. Very cool. All right. So like I said, we got a lot to talk about, Ben. Uh, we've got two weeks, three weeks now, really, of, of playing this format that we haven't gotten to discuss outside of cycling and companions in the past couple weeks on the show. So where, where do you want to start? Let's start on Arena. You and I both, I think, independently of discussing with each other, both decided to play on Arena this week because we felt like we had enough draft logs stocked up from MTGO. And we both played a little bit this weekend on MTGO to get some current draft logs for you. So that, that Flash deck is from, what, a couple days ago? Yeah. So I think, you know, on Arena... Best of one is what I've been doing on Arena. I've done a very few best of three drafts, mostly because I feel like if I were playing best of three, I would just rather do it on Magic Online. Like best of one feels something that's unique and good about Arena to me. Um, So what I'm talking about right now on Arena for me is strictly best of one drafts. And it feels hard to draft cycling. Every once in a blue moon, you get a draft where it's wide open. But I think that's like once every 15 drafts or something. It feels like more of the time. There's like three or four people starting down the cycling road, pack one, and then a lot of them abandon ship sometimes in pack two, sometimes it's not till pack three, but eventually somebody thinks, oh, I'm not going to get there and stops. And once that happens, if you're the last person that's left in the deck, you still can get there in a very good cycling deck, but it's, it's scary going down that road. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking through my 17 lands data right now of the decks that I drafted and one of my 21 drafts from Silver to Mythic was red white cycling. And the other two red white decks that I had were like, I had like a weird red white Vigi mutate deck. I had a red white humans with a cycling package deck. But yeah, it's hard for it to come together in my mind. And I don't know if that's because I'm just not on the hard force plan because I see the deck quite a bit. Like in Diamond, I was seeing that deck a lot on the other side of the battlefield. Yeah, I'm not on the forcing cycling train at all. For me to get into cycling on Arena right now, I want to open one of like Zenith Flare, Fox, Valiant Rescuer, maybe Reptilian Reflection, like one of those four cards. And I want to get that early and then get past some stuff before I really feel like I want to start going down the road. I don't want to first pick a one CMC cycler. That's that's not what I'm doing. I also don't want to first pick snare tactician or even prickly marmoset. Like I'm not first picking the strictly payoffs for cycling at common that can't cycle themselves. Like drain at stinger feels like we talked about in the round table, much more flexible of a pick. I mean, I'll first pick a prickly marmoset, but only because the pack's weak, right? I mean, prickly marmoset is just a good card. Yes, I agree. I agree. So that's been my experience with cycling on Arena. I do think the other thing that I really experienced once I hit Diamond was that people were drafting Mardu a lot more. And I think that's part of why I hit a significant bump in my win rate. So we, we might as well talk about that, get that out of the road here. So I'm currently sitting at top 100 Mythic. Um, I played, played a draft or two yesterday. But on the way from Silver to Diamond, I had an 80% win rate in best of one, which is absurd. Dang. And then yeah. in Diamond, I did 24 drafts and had a 56% win rate. Wow. So it was a huge drop. I hit a real slump. And some of it was compounded due to tilt and like bad play. But a lot of it was just like, I was just losing a lot. 
And I think some of it was that people were drafting Mardu more. And that was like my go-to when cycling wasn't open, that I could get a good Mardu deck. And that just wasn't always the case. It felt like people were taking weaponize higher and that they knew like that squads and potions and things were good. Just, just the general arena population, right? Because my drafts aren't different because I'm in Diamond. It just felt like the arena drafting community was drafting Mardu more and was better at drafting Mardu. Yeah. The one exception to that, at least from my experience, was I feel like weaponize the monsters is still really underdrafted. I see that card go late. I see it wheel. Initially, I was taking that as a pretty big signal. I would like abandon a lot of picks if I saw weaponize the monsters like pack one, pick seven. I'd go, oh, crap, this deck is open. But that doesn't really bear out honestly i feel like the support as you're talking about for those decks is scooped up like the whisper squads and the poachers but weaponized for some reason seems to slip through the cracks or at least that was my experience but it doesn't necessarily mean that that deck is open right so that was tough uh just learning that and learning how to adapt my draft strategy based on that i do think blue red feels a little open on arena right now like just as a general thing Mm -hmm. like it's maybe a little underdrafted compared to cycling and mardu And then there's times, you know, maybe you and I have bashed green enough that there's times green (laughs) is wide open. And if that is the case, I do think you should move in and draft green. So what are the things you're looking to do when you're drafting green? Because I think there's there it's narrow enough that I think you need to hone in on what green does best and try and exploit that. Yeah, I I prefer to be green non mutate, honestly, when I'm drafting green. Um, Mm -hmm. But if if green mutates open, I will happily do that as well. But I think my personal goal with green is to have as much life gain, first of all, like honey mammoths or, you know, an alert heat bonder with a vigilance package, some way to just buffer my life total against cycling and other aggressive decks. And then the ability to just go over the top or, you know, if I'm mutating to be all in on mutate. But I think you need a lot of premium non-green mutators for the mutate to really work because the mutate deck in green really Starks is the only one I'm excited about. That's the four and a green, six, six that mutates for five and a green. And whenever it mutates, you reveal cards from the top of your library until you hit a permanent where X is the number of times it's mutated. And for that card to be good, that's when you want to be all in on mutate. But I agree, like that's green's best mutator. Um, And I think that's one of the reasons that we're thinking that one of the things green does best or one of the only things green does well is splash and play other powerful cards. And so that's why I'm honestly on migratory greathorn as the best green common right now. I think that's probably maybe a hot take, but I I feel pretty confident about that. I'm pretty low on that card. So it'd be interesting to have a discussion on it. So let me tell you my thoughts on why I'm not super high on it and see if you can talk me up. So I feel like I only want that card when I'm going hard on mutate and that it's going to either doing one of two things. It's either going to ramp you on turn three, which is good, ramp and fix, or, you know, you're able to mutate onto, you know, your auspicious Starks, or you're able to mutate onto your archipelago and trigger it again, although that card doesn't often need triggering a second time. Mm -hmm. You're mutating onto your pouncing shore shark, whatever, that you've got premium uncommon mutators that you want to mutate onto and trigger on those mutate stacks that's pretty much the only time i think i would be excited about that card yeah but well so i guess my feeling is i have here listed in our show notes i think green is good at doing basically four things two major and two minor i'd say the two major things are mutate and splashing the two minor things being reanimator and life gain these are all reliant on non-commons basically and so if we're thinking about green the overlap of mutate and splashing being the two major things that green does best migratory greathorn is the overlap of those at common and so it starts your mutate chain on three and that's when the deck is powerful like if you can go whatever random one or two drop into greathorn and then you start that chain rolling if you get to go another mutate on four and another mutate on five that's when I feel like the deck is most explosive. It's one of the reasons that Polywog Symbiote is such a good enabler for the deck because it allows you to like jumpstart from two to four. So you get to go, you know, Symbiote into Heron on three. And now you're starting that chain going upward. Obviously, that chain is disruptible, but you're hoping to accrue value along the way. And if you're splashing in your mutate deck for, you know, you're trying to get that Porcuparrot package or you open some one of those busted three color mutate rares, you know, that you're trying to put into your deck, that sort of thing. I think Migratory Greathorn just like is that Venn diagram overlap. Yeah, that makes sense to me that that splashing is splashing for powerful mutate cards is one of the things you most often want to splash for in green. Yeah, I just have played mutate so rarely that I've I've been like I view fixing cards for green as better than Greathorn. Like I would rather have Farfinder to fix or I would rather have Evolving Wilds to fix. I guess I've, I've been playing green splash decks that aren't 
mutate decks. But that, that makes a lot of sense to me, what you said about Greathorn being the Venn diagram overlap there. Cool. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons this format is so sweet to me or like I'm really excited about having a couple months to podcast about it because not only do I think there's so much that I haven't explored yet, but people that are having success with the format that are good players are having different experiences are still, you know, weeks in thinking like different cards are higher up or lower or whatever. Like I think you and I are just having different experiences in the format. And I think that's really awesome fodder for discussion. Absolutely. hundred percent. So swinging back to arena and best of one. So we've talked about, you know, cycling, Mardu, green. The other thing that happened to me in diamond that I really started to prioritize was cheap removal and interaction goes up in value a lot. Because something about the the best of one hand smoother just means that both people are normally curving out and using all of their mana in turns two through six. So being efficient with your mana is really, really, really important. I've also been mulliganing a lot more aggressively, especially on the draw. Like, it's weird because I feel like you maybe in best of one, you're in the dark every game. And so you don't have information. But honestly, what you're talking about, about most people curving out and just assuming your opponent's going to go like two drop, three drop, four drop or whatever, if you're on the draw, I think that's a really good default. And then I find myself going like, well, if I'm like, if this hand has any chance of stumbling on the draw, or if I'm keeping a, a hand where like my first play is on three and it's not great, or it's on four, or I like need to hit another color of my mana, like all of those things, I'm, I'm much more inclined to mulligan those hands in the dark in best of one on arena than I would be in the dark in best of three. I agree 100%. And you also have those hands like when you're black red that have three swamps and you need to hit your mountain. Like I feel like that happens something about the arena shuffler. I swear mm-hmm. to God, there, there are hands where you have three lands. Don't don't go all shuffling truth around me, Ben. I, I can't I can't handle it. Swear, Not you too. I swear to God, where you have three <laughs> lands of the same color in your seven card hand and you need to hit your second color. And I think those hands, you're supposed to mulligan them on the draw if you don't have you know, something good to do on turn three. Yeah, agreed. I mean, because you're, you know, if you, you've got like eight or nine red sources in your deck, if you're, you know, a split of nine, eight or whatever, or eight, eight, if you're trying to like, you know, mize the shuffler for that extra spell slot or whatever, you know, you're you're less than 50% to hit that by turn three. <laughs> shuffler, truth, or... And it's funny, you know, like it's best of one and knowing that there's a hand smoothing algorithm, right? So it's not like yes. being a shuffler, truther, right? Nothing about the magic online shuffler. I would never doubt it ever. Yeah. 100 percent okay i was just nervous (laughs) i was nervous you were gonna be like i swear when i keep those three swamp hands i never ever see a mountain it's (laughs) it's rigged or whatever no i think i think your opening hand sees opening hands like that more often and i'm willing to like go down that road with my tinfoil hat because i know that there's like a hand smoothing algorithm, right? Like we know it's not pure. Right. And so I think that's that's why I think, you know, those are the the slight differences you and I are making in terms of like just assuming that people are going to curve out. And that sort of dictates not only cheap removal being better, but dictates like how you should be building decks. Like basically, I you know, for example, I think the ultimatums are a trap in best of one. I would agree with that 100%. I just think like you're asking for trouble if you're building some sort of janky mana base to try and cast these ultimatums because like your opponent's not going to care if most of the time they're like on busted cycling or just you know curving out with mutate or whatever or just like cheap humans like that's just gonna go under you almost always i mean the the mardu and the abzan ones are worth playing but you should not pack one pick one then like you should have a shell where you think okay like i'm already kind of doing this thing, I can probably play this card. Right. I've already got the wilds and the far finders and a crystal or whatever. So I think, you know, speaking about that cheap removal and interaction, pacifism is way better in best of one than it is in best of three. Fight is one is another card that super impressed me. That's the single white instant and you choose one or both um, regarding a human and a non-human to give plus one plus one an indestructible to. That card has crushed me and it crushed me enough times that I finally just started picking it a little higher and playing it and it delivered every time. I think to that, I've been impressed by situational slash rarely played around cards like combat tricks, like unlikely aid, sudden spinnerets, keep safe. Those can really blow people out because they're never going to have a chance to adjust for that card in game two or three. And those are cards that you're just like not generally having on your radar in game one. Not that I've like been putting them in my decks more often, but I have noticed that like, I'm just like, oh, they cast unlikely aid here. And now 
the game swings wildly out of control for me. Right, 100%. I think another card, and I just didn't really realize this until just now, a card that really impressed me in Best of One is Lurking Deadeye. Because I think you're curving out more often, like two drop, three drop into Lurking Deadeye, and it just makes it really hard for your opponents to block. Right, Well, and that's the sort of card where it's like, you can read your opponent having it, but what are you going to do about it? Right. Like even, even if you peg them for having it, then it's like, so I just never block? Like, what are you supposed to do? Yeah. So we're talking about sort of like gameplay decisions, maybe some draft decisions that we're making differently for best of one. Are there any deck building differences you're making? Like this is a, a frequently asked question, right? Like, do you, are you main decking a plummet in best of one, but not in best of three? Any of those sorts of things? I think I'm trying to run less lands than I would in best of three. That was finally a concession I made mentally in diamond that I was willing to go a land less than I normally would in best of three. Did you see the chart? from 17 lands and Sirkovitz about the hand smoothing algorithm and the number of lands? No, I, I can't. I don't know how to read any of those things. I'm too <laughs> stupid. It was, it was actually saying that 16 is the optimal number of lands to get the, okay. get the right ratio of lands and spells in your starting hand. Like it was, it was actually more beneficial to you to run 16 to have a three land opener than it was to run 17. Interesting. Whoa, that's wild. Yeah. It was like a really interesting curve. We'll see if we can find it and link it in the show notes. Okay, sweet. Um, yeah, I've been finding that I want access to some sort of disenchant effect like Wilt because it has cycling or Light of Hope, which can sort of go into that like situational, rarely played around common combat tricks. Like I think those cards are important. It's just tough when your opponent sticks something like a Bastion or a Weaponize and you just go, oh, I have no way to interact with that. Yeah. I mean, I'm main decking Wilt 100% of the time if I'm green in best of three as well. Oh, really? So yeah, I feel like in best of one, I'm like, I definitely want to play Wilt. And in best of three, I'm like, well, sometimes I have a deck where it's just such a lean, mean, mutate machine or whatever, that that's what I want to have in my deck. I want all column A, column B stuff, and I don't have room for Wilt. But I feel like in best of one, I'm, I'm trying to make room for it. Yeah, that makes sense. The other thing that I've experienced, you know, going back to the gameplay and the tricks and things like that in best of one is that a lot of times the games come down to one either hyper efficient or just really backbreaking turn where there's a combat and someone gets blown out. And it usually happens around turn six through eight, where somebody's either got a removal spell or two removal spells or a removal spell and a trick or removal, a cheap removal spell and another threat. And the game ends like when that turn happens. And so really trying to be conscious about trying to craft the game in a way to where you can prevent your opponent doing that and position yourself to where you're the person that's able to have one of those backbreaking turns. Yeah, that's, that makes a lot of sense to me. And that's definitely the experience that I've had, that feeling of like, maybe the, the game isn't necessarily actually over, but you can pinpoint that turn midway through the game that mattered. That's the turn where it all swung around for your opponent or where you put the nail in the coffin and then maybe you won like three turns later or whatever. But I agree that those those pivotal turns are the ones to look out for. And it's weird, like because that happens in best of three magic too, right? But it, it mm -hmm. doesn't happen with the regularity that it happens in best of one. It feels like 80% of games or something come down to something like that just because you mulligan less and you curve out more like everything about best of one builds to that scenario much more than best of three does in my opinion well and again and i feel like you know when we talked about this with sam black for example when he was on the show like in best of one, you don't have the opportunity to play around extinction event or other sweepers or whatever, where you don't have the opportunity to adjust for game two and three when you go, oh, they have lurking Deadeye and unlikely aid or whatever, like they blew you out with a keep safe. And so now you get to spend game two and three recognizing keep safe and thinking about how to not get got by that card or how to adjust like you take out your fight spell and you bring in sudden spinnerets because that lets you play against keep safe better or whatever like you just don't get any of those opportunities you don't get to leverage any sort of deck building or sideboarding skill that you have so you're sort of out of luck in that respect and then stack on that or, or tack on to that that every game matters it's not match wins it's game wins right yeah that makes that makes sense for sure so speaking of every game matters if you're really trying to grind a mythic or you're just playing the ranked ladder and your goal is to rank up just wanted to talk about the mental side of it for a little bit <laughs> because i i lost my mind this week and i think ultimately for me and I, I don't know if this is true for other people or not but for me it was definitely rooted in a sense of entitlement 
And I, I think that's where it comes from for a lot of people. I felt like I deserved to be mythic because I've been there before. And I felt like I deserved to get there quicker than I was getting there, especially since I had, you know, blew through up to diamond with an 80% win rate. I just thought, why is this happening to me? I'm better than this, blah, blah, blah. I'm getting unlucky. And once you start to go down that road, it's really hard to come back from that road. Like I was legitimately angry. I was losing a lot and I was losing because I was angry. I was playing worse. So I would just try to draft and play your best rather than focus on moving up in rank. Like if the moving up in rank happens, great. But really, you know, if you're doing that, you're a competitive person, right? You want to win. The way to do that is to draft and play well. Like you can't control the outcome of the matches other than trying to play your best. So I would I would try to get your mindset there. There was a really interesting segment on I think it was the last or, or two episodes ago of limited level ups. They had a, their question of the week was about tilt. And I think Alex, aka Corticals, is just one of the best people at managing tilt. Like I just feel like he never, never gets tilted. Like maybe when he lost his like three win and ins for day two in GP New Jersey, he was like, I need to go take a lap. I'm gonna like go up to my hotel room for a minute. But he even just like you know, a few minutes later came down and was fine, you know, or at least appeared fine. I think he recovers from that stuff really, really well. And he exactly talked about that. He says, I think tilt is rooted in expectation. And if you expect something to happen and it doesn't happen, that's when you get upset. But I, I think one of the big things that we're talking about here and what you and I both experienced and, and had the the like maybe wherewithal afterwards to go back and actually look at the win rate difference. You know, for me, it was I, I spent a lot less time in Diamond. I think I got pretty lucky in terms of when my losses hit, that's another thing that happens. It's variance. Like, because when you rank up to like, you know, diamond two, you have like a couple losses to give before you rank down again. I felt like I had a lot of my one threes in that little section. And so that helped me from not ranking down too much when I was hitting my rough patch of losses. But I think just expecting that when you get to diamond, your win rate is going to plummet. Whatever it was, I mean, maybe not as as large, you know, you weren't as high as Ben was in 80. I was only at like 69%, but I dropped down to 59% when I got to diamond. Like you're just going to win a lot less. And that's the kind of expectation you need to have to sort of adjust for not getting tilted. Right. It's hard. You should expect it to be hard. And I think when you're playing against platinum players, you should also expect them to be very good players. I, I think that's just true at this point, like platinum, diamond, and not that like, you know, whatever, if you're in gold or silver, you know, some people don't have time to draft as much as us. But by and large, I think platinum is where it starts to feel a little different. And then diamond really feels difficult. And I think the other thing is you just need to be prepared for bad beats to come and you need to be prepared to handle them mentally. So, I mean, I literally took two days off magic, came back and you know, did win when I came back, partially because my mindset was better, partially because I got luckier. Um, but it was very healthy for me to take two days off. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's amazing that you like had the mental state to say, look, this is what I need to do. And this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to like set aside this game that I love and is a huge part of my life. And I'm just gonna let it be for a couple of days. Yeah. So I, I want to go back to this discussion about removal, um, being really, really strong in best of one. And I definitely agree with that. And maybe talk about removal in the context of Aquaria Limited in general, because I have a pretty strong take on this. And I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this as well. Yeah, lay your take on me. Let's start with you. So I think removal is uh, pretty dang overrated in this format. I think removal in general is just overrated and limited. I think this is a pretty big holdover from from bread as probably what everyone's introduction to limited drafting is. And if you haven't heard this, it's funny because I think it's just so outdated at this point that no one really talks about it. But for for old school people like you and, and I, this was our introduction. This was our first level up moment was learning, ah, you take cards in the order of bombs, removal, evasion, and then whatever A and D stood for you. I think it was abilities and dudes for you. For me, it was aggro and then dregs. But like, that's how you draft, right? You draft in that order. That's how you you pick cards out of a pack. You know, you're looking for bombs first, then removal, etc. By and large, now that we're in this age of limited where you're drafting decks, not cards, and Aquaria feels like that on steroids so much, you know, we're talking about all these synergy decks like macro synergies, micro synergies, pockets of synergies, whatever you want to call them, index. But you, by and large, you really want to be able to, at the end of a draft, say like, this, these are my column A payoffs and these are my column B enablers, and you don't have room for much else. And so beyond the like hyper-efficient removal in my mind, like Blood Curdle, Fire Prophecy, Heartless Act, everything else, and there's a lot of everything else, is splashable, single-pipped, and 
really on the same level. Like we're talking Ram through Essence Scatter, Divine Arrow, Pacifism, Capture Sphere, Deadweight. Like you, you are going to have ways to interact with your opponent's stuff. And I don't think beyond those like top tier cards, you need to prioritize them. Because if you end the draft with eight removal spells, I think that's not going to be a good deck. Like maybe you have like some bombs that you can protect, but by and large, I think you want to be posing questions, not looking for answers in this format. Yeah, there's a lot of things I agree with that you said 100%. And I think it's important to categorize removal. Like there's just wide qualities of removal these days. Yes. And like removal is not removal. Like the, the difference between blood curdle and pacifism is gigantic or the difference between Fire Prophecy and Capture Sphere, or the, even the difference between Fire Prophecy and Ram Through, or, mm-hmm. or God forbid, something like Garbage Charge of the Forever Beast. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just un- unplayable chaff right there. Man, that card. Whew. The, like, the difference in power level between those cards is enormous, right? Like, So you should be first picking Blood Curdle. You should be first picking Fire Prophecy. Pacifism? Eh. In best of one, I'm a lot more excited about it. In best of three, not at all. Yeah, that's how I feel. So what what did you disagree with what I said? Or, or where do you feel like there's some, some yes buts to my little uh, diatribe there? I think in Red Black specifically, I'm pretty happy with seven to eight removal spells because I think there's a certain synergy there in a way with a lot of the menace creatures. So like you almost have a synergy package between removal and cards like Ferocious Tigerilla that clocks for four and is essentially unblockable if you've got that number of removal spells. So I think there's there's some room there to have that number of removal spells. And I think you probably do want close to no, that's that's not even true. Like you don't want four blood curdles in your deck. You you probably don't like just for curve considerations, period. But then beyond that, like what else are you putting in your deck? But I'm, I mean, I'm not going to disagree that Red Black Menace wants removal. And you're also describe you're also listing the two colors that have the best removal to them. They have the actual I'm getting this thing off the board removal spells the like top three that I mentioned. But then you're also getting access to Deadweight and Flame Spill and Rumbling Rock Slide, which is just sort of like blood curdle light sometimes. You just get access to the best removal, and that removal is actually getting the thing off the battlefield, which is a huge difference to pacifism and capture sphere or situational stuff like Divine Arrow or Ram Through. Right. I, I do agree. Yes. And I think the other thing you know, you were talking about, you know, you want all A's and B's and there's very little room. I do think you need to make a little bit of room for two to three removal spells at a minimum and hopefully the best ones you can get your hands on. If I'm in red, white cycling, I do want like two to three ways to interact with my opponent. I really want either like a pacifism and two fire prophecies, or if I can't get pacifism, I want like a blade banish or two. You you need a way to deal with if the game doesn't go well and your opponent sticks a honey mammoth or they reanimate, you know, something with Unbreakable Bond, that the game isn't just over on the spot. Yes, I agree 100%. And I'm also thinking about, like, the cards that my deck are going to have a hard time interacting with. Like, maybe a Prickly Marmoset and a Snare Tactician is tough for me. Well, then, I have no qualms main decking a Springjaw Trap or two in my deck to deal with those cards. I'm not saying that I want to end a draft without any way to interact with my opponent's stuff, but I'm just hoping that that interaction is either premium or hopefully slots into column A or column B in my deck. Yeah, I agree. And I do think I do agree largely in general with the sentiment that people are taking removal too highly and too aggressively. Yeah. Yes, the 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 medium, the replaceable removal, the removal that doesn't stand out. Like I'm not saying just to not take your blood curdles and your fire prophecies, but everything else I would strongly consider like is there a synergy piece in this pack that I could take over this removal spell? Because the synergy pieces are going to be harder to come by than the like wide sweeping sea level removal spells that exist in the set right pick pick orders for the set in general should be cards that make a deck work and then premium removal and then cards that support the deck and then like the the medium plus removal yes i agree i think that's that's right and whatever sexy acronym we come up with in the next week (laughs) that's what we'll throw out to you boom all right what do we got next on the list ben just gonna talk about green it's not easy being green, you know? Yeah, well, I know you're pretty low on green, but maybe maybe Honey Mammoth has rekindled your love for the color. Honey Mammoth has rekindled my love for green a little bit. Um, and I do think it's open enough. And when it's open, it's a it's draftable for sure. I mean, it's certainly my my least favorite route to go down, but I will go down the route and it does do some powerful things depending on what sort of cards you see. So 
Some non-mutate reasons to want to be green. Honey Mammoth, 4GG, 6-6, gain 4. Can you imagine if they put Colossal Dreadmaw in this set too? Oh man. The Trample deck would be so much better if Colossal Dreadmaw were in the set. Yeah, for sure. I haven't really done the thing with Honey Mammoth plus Fully Grown yet to, to give it the Trample counter to turn it into the Colossal Dreadmaw that we deserve, um, but maybe I'm missing out. You're not living, my friend. That's that's a real deal for sure. No, I bet it is. I mean, like, I think all the things we're talking about by and large are things where it's like, what at common gives you the juice? Like, that's what I'm looking for. So that's when you can leverage a color is when you don't need the rares and the uncommons to make the deck tick. So when you get that, just like, build your own Colossal Dreadmaw thing. It's actually a pretty big game. It, and it sounds like sort of sarcastic, but it really is big game because it's so good against the aggro decks in the format. Honey Mammoth is just good against cycling. And then when you have the plus three, plus three and trample, the game's just over most of the time. And good against black, white, go wide. Like now they can't chump with their whisper squads or their one, one tokens. Right. hundred um, percent. Another thing green gives you is main deck wilt. I think that's very important. And one of the reasons to be green, main deck wilt, super strong. Mm-hmm. Ram through, but this card has somehow been disappointing still to me, and I'm not sure why. Yeah, this is the best ever fight spell. It's not a fight spell, it's a punch spell. It's instant speed, and it has the potential to even deal damage to your opponent, and somehow it just doesn't feel that exciting in the format. That, that's that been one of the, the big growing pains for me, I think, is coming down off of ram through and putting migratory greathorn in that that top spot for the green commons. I think one of the reasons is that ram through is really awkward, has awkward tension with the vigilance deck, because if you end up in white green vigilance, you're really probably have like four or five creatures in your deck that actually fight very well. Cause even if you're slapping a solid footing on a, a vigilance creature to make it a five, five in combat, it's not a five, five with ram through, you know? Um, I, I don't know. Maybe it's just cause there's still other good ways to interact at instant speed that you feel like you still have to pick your spots so you don't get blown out. Uh, but I, I definitely had the same experience with the card. It doesn't pull me into green anymore. No, me either. And, and there are like, even when I'm in green, I could definitely see like taking column A, column B cards over it. Like I could take an essence symbiote over that card. If I know I'm in a, a mutate deck, I could even see taking a brush swag over it. If I felt like I've got a lot of mutate creatures, I got to make sure I get the creatures I can mutate onto, you know? And I, if I'm going big, I'm taking the first Honey Mammoth over the first Ram through. I know that sounds crazy, <laughs> but I am. No, I think that's totally reasonable. It's so it's so interesting. And then Sandworm also is great because it's got cycling and it can reanimate. Although Sandworm's secretly more of a black card than it is a green card, I think. And then just a quick rundown of like reasons to draft green and then perhaps things to look out for that are overrated in green. You know, obviously we talked about going ham on Mutate. Like that's really one of the things that does does best or if you're just like seeing green cards absurdly open you're seeing starix like fourth pick or whatever like that's a huge signal for you or ram throughs you know going around seventh eighth wheeling ram throughs i think all our reasons to say hey this table values green similarly to how i do i probably should suck it up and draft it yeah for sure i think alert heedbonder is a card that you and i have both fallen in love with recently that's the one slesnia slesnia hybrid two four that gains you a life for each creature you control with vigilance on the battlefield and counts itself so heedbonder plus goriak or main servals other vigilance creatures it just embarrasses cycling and or like you know the weaponized decks the decks that want to attack your life total quickly and aggressively or from another sort of angle these cards just laugh at so i wrote an article for cards here last week about like the column a column b theory in the format and i listed alert heedbonder among other such powerful build arounds like valiant rescuer or auspicious starix or archipelagor or bastion or weaponize and i got a lot of pushback from folks saying like I agree with every card on this list, but Alert Heedbonder, that's like filler trash. Or how that how you how do you get into the Vigilance deck without Frontland Felidar? Just like just trust us. If you haven't played with or against this deck, Alert Heedbonder plus just a, a couple of Vigilance creatures is the real deal. It demands to be dealt with by a lot of decks, and if they can't, you are going to win the game by not losing the game. Well, and sometimes their removal is pacifism, and like yeah. they just can't get it off the battlefield. <laughs> right. You play Alert Heedbonder against Blue White, you're just like living easy with that card it's really good and and you can get the solid footings late that that deck's super real alert heedbonder is a reason to draft the vigilance deck in my opinion yeah and i'm pack one pick wanting it over every common in the set i agree i would take it over blood <laughs> yeah it's, you're taking it over blood curdle it's, cl- it's close with blood curdle and fire prophecy for me starix is great you know that's a reason to draft green but it's really only going to excel in a mutate deck and back for more is just bonkers. You know, a great reason to draft green, black or green splashing the black part of 
you know, back for more. I think green control and life gain, you know, you want these heat bonders, you want these mutators is a super strong shell for reanimator. When I'm playing on, you know, arena MTGO and my opponent has a reanimator deck, I'm worried the entire game because they have so many powerful plays they can make. Yeah, I agree. I think the other great thing is we're talking about green being great at fixing. I mean, there's colorless fixing in the set as well with the dual lands, evolving wilds, Farfinder. But green really does get a lot of good stuff. Humble Naturalist, because it uh, it helps with your mutate-based creature decks, uh, splashing around, as well as Migratory Great Horn. And then you've got even Fertilid is not very good. That's going to be on our overrated list in, in just a, a second here. But in a lot of formats, when you don't have a clear direction and you just end pack one with a bunch of fixing, that's a deck. And that gives you the opportunity, because there are so many powerful cards in the set, that gives you the opportunity to snap up those really strong rares that get past you and those really strong uncommons that you open and get past. Right. That's one of the times I'm most frequently green, is when I don't find a direction in pack one, and I just like pick some fixing, pick some green fixing, and then you know you just take great cards from packs two and three, and you hope to get there. Just a quick little... We, we, we've done a whole episode on building mana bases in Limited. I would highly recommend listening to that in a format like this that I think a lot of people think is like a three-color format but isn't really especially in best of one where you want a streamlined deck um splashing in your deck in limited has a large cost on your mana base right like as you stretch your mana base you are impacting the way that you are able to curve out in a game of magic and so you need to have powerful cards that outweigh that impact on your deck so you just really need to think about that like splashing for a two drop is not something you should ever do like you're like ah, i'm splashing for polywog symbiote and dreamtail heron that doesn't seem that good to me because heron is just like fine to meh as a mutate card i would say and polywog symbiote is a two drop and you just shouldn't be splashing two drops because you're not going to be able to play your splash cards on curve almost ever so just think about the impact those kinds of things are having on your deck right you want to be splashing your Everquill cool phoenix and your chittering harvester those are the cards you want to splash Exactly. So taking a look at some overrated green cards now, first one on the list, Glowstone Recluse. This card is awkward. Really, it's an expensive plus two plus two aura most of the time. You should not pick this highly. It's not a reason to be mutate. You will maybe play it in a mutate deck if you've got great cards to mutate onto to trigger and you just need more mutators to trigger them. But by and large, I am not a fan. Exuberant wolf bear in most decks. You really don't want to pick this early. It's it's best in green, white or green, black. But like the non-human human stuff is, is not really something that comes up a lot. And I keep hearing people say that the floor of a four mana four four is fine, which I hard disagree with in this format. Right. That would be true in some formats. And that's true as a baseline evaluation of a limited card on the vanilla test. This format is jacked through the roof with power. Agree. Fertilids up next. We said it earlier. This card's not good fixing. It's miles worse than cards like Evolving Wilds or Farfinder. And last on the list is Essence Symbiote. You shouldn't need to take this highly if you're supposed to be in green. So my sort of rule of thumb in these heavy mutate decks is I generally want at least like the base level is five, one and two drops that can be mutated onto. And that's to really open up because generally these base green mutate decks are splashing and I value Greathorn highly for that reason so that I can get it down on three to find my splash color and get my mutate chain going. And so you really want to be able to have, I think, at minimum five things to mutate onto so you can get that curve started on three. And yeah, Essence Symbiote is great. The plus one plus one counter and the two life is great, but you don't need to take it that high. And honestly, just like, whatever you can mutate onto is fine. Like egg and brushwag are also totally reasonable. So wrapping up green there, we're going to take a look at some deck rankings now, just overall power level wise in the format now that we've had a chance to play it quite a bit. Number one on the list. And so we're probably going to start doing this uh, from one to bottom after a good piece of feedback from S Doherty, Sean Doherty on Twitch, um, that it's really hard to keep track of when we go from 10 to one or whatever, like that, you know, you can follow along better knowing what the best cards are when you go from top to bottom. And that just made a lot of sense to me as a teacher. So number one slot, cycling. Number two, Mardu grind variants. So any sort of you know red, white, non-cycling, but generally we're talking red, black, and black, red, or even maybe some sort of like black, red, splash, white sort of thing. But any sort of like go wide, grind sort of value deck. Based around, you know, cards like Bastion, Weaponize, Bushmeat Poacher, Whisper Squad, Durable Coil Bug, you know, mutual destruction, like those decks. Just salivating at that pocket of synergy you're describing. That's a big pocket. That's like a kangaroo size pouch <laughs> of synergy right there. 
In third place, we've got Red X Aggro. So decks like Blue Red Spells, Red Black Menace and Sacrifice, Red White Mutate, those sorts of things. And now bringing up the rear here, number four, Green Black Reanimate Control. And I think there's there's a pretty big line in the sand from those top three to these bottom four. We're going to go four through seven here in that the top three don't need rares and honestly need a few uncommons maybe to build around. But by and large, they are comprised of commons. And one of the reasons is all three of these decks are red and red's commons run deep and they run strong. So yeah, green, black, reanimate control at number four. It's very scary to play against. I think those are the best flavor of green decks. Yeah. Back for more is just one of the best on commons in the set. 100%. And Unbreakable Bond, too. Like, there's a lot of games that end the turn you cast an Unbreakable Bond if your opponent doesn't have a removal spell. For sure. In the number five slot, we've got Mutate Variants coming in behind that. Uh, Number six, we've got Green Vigilance Control. We're going to talk about Vigilance in just a second. But uh, the Green Vigilance Control decks, I think, are more of the, like, Honey Mammoth Life Gain decks that have, like, a small package with an alert Heat Bonder. Right, yeah. You've got Heat Bonders, you've got Goriax, you want to block and then cast large monsters until your opponent submits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And then bringing up the rear, we've got green-white vigilance. And I think, you know, blue-black flash could be included here too, like the more the more niche allied color pair decks. Right, which I, I think we want to talk about just real quick, this vigilance deck and this flash deck and, and how they work, how you get into them, the things you're looking for. So first up, let's talk about our favorite deck with our flavor of the week, maybe, the vigilance deck. What's going on here? So your payoffs are Frontland Felidar. That's the rare, which is just an absurd card. You don't need to be in the Vigilance deck for that to be good. Uh, that's the two green, white, three, five, and then gives all your Vigilance creatures the ability to pay one tap to tap target creature and opponent controls. Just completely oppressive. Alert Heat Bonder, we've sung its praises, as well as Keensight Mentor. That's the white Vigilance Mentor. And then the enablers. So you're, you're really, it's, it's weird because you're actually looking for things that already have Vigilance with these Mentors which is not something I would have thought of, but I I don't really care about like adding the vigilance counter. I just want maximum cards that have this ability keyword. So Farfinder is great. Main Serval is great. Moscow Goriak is fine. Solid footing is actually very real. If you get, you know, like six Vigi creatures, then I'm looking to run one to two solid footings as just awesome combat tricks or awesome ways to push through large chunks of damage. Yeah, 100%. And I think more often than not, this is a package in a deck rather than the main game plan, but it's very strong and very flexible, and you can turn it into an entire deck. It really, Mm -hmm. a lot of the times, can pair well with a mutate package because the vigilance from the main servals or the far finders is really strong. And then, you know, cards like Vulpakeet or Heron, you know, if you're mutating onto those vigilance creatures, lets you attack in the air and then defend if you need to. Um, It definitely is base white. If you're going hard on Vigilance, 100%. But it can pair with, I think, all four colors. Yeah, I think certainly. Especially if it's more of a package than the deck. Exactly, yeah. And then I want to talk about this Flash deck real quick. Like I said, I've drafted this deck a few times in the past few days. I think it's really strong. It definitely needs Slitherwisp. That's the card that you really want to make it work. Cunning Nightbonder is also important, but as, as you sort of have edited here in our show notes, it, it is definitely more of an enabler than a payoff for the deck, but feels like you're taking it over basically anything once you have Slitherwisp because they pair so well together. Yeah, that makes sense to me. So what's going on as far as like the gameplay patterns in this deck? So... You're really looking to leverage draw go as much as possible. So you're you're rounding out your flash cards, Blitz Leech, Lurking Dead Eye, Capture Sphere, Spring Draw Trap, Instant Speed Removal, Instant Speed Card Draw like Dark Bargain. You're putting those in a deck with counter magic, like filling it out with Essence Scatters, Neutralize, Convolute in a pinch, so that you just have a lot of ways to say like, all right, on turn four, I have the option to search up a Whisper Squad if I want counter something you play you know block with whisper squad finish something off with lurking deadeye if i want capture sphere something on end step like you just have a lot of things that you can do and if that stuff is cheaper from the night bonder or cantripping with slitherwisp that's really the juice for the deck and some things to look out for adaptive shimmerer that's the five mana flash zero zero comes into play with three plus one plus one counters on it so if that's only four mana with the night bonder that's a lot better And it is absurd with Mutate. If you get like a little Mutate package with that, then you can drop a Cavern Whisperer on it, you know, end step, flash it in, then Cavern Whisperer, and now you have a 7-7 Menace or Dreamtail Heron. Now you have a 6-7 Flyer. So there's a lot of things. And and again, 
beyond just Slitherwisp and Nightbonder, we're just talking commons here, man. Like this deck has all the pieces and a lot of these cards go late or wheel. Right. There's a lot of a lot of clunkers you're talking about yeah. in the deck for sure that are not clunky because of cards like Cunning Nightbonder. Exactly. Yeah. Cunning, that's why like Cunning Nightbonder is just on that cusp of being a payoff because it really like once you're talking about a four mana Shimmerer or a five mana Blitzleech or a three mana Capture Sphere or a zero mana Springjaw Trap, now the deck is cooking, you know, like a lot of that stuff goes from clunky to great pretty quickly. Right. That makes total sense to me. So not all of the time in this format are you really going to get a streamlined deck. You're not always going to end up in green, white vigilance. You're not always going to end up in red, white cycling. So just some stuff to look out for when your deck doesn't quite come together, or your draft doesn't come quite together, because those are going to happen. So one of the ones that really impressed me when I was playing best of one was reconnaissance mission, plus some sort of go wide, like either in red with some forbidden friendships or in black with whisper squads. But that card is really powerful once it gets going. I also want to just throw out like if you are doing some sort of go wide plan, you really need to think about I had a lot of times come up on stream this week where I was making attacks that folks in chat would not have made but were like oh that's what allowed you to win like you need to be okay with like chump attacking four one ones into something that can eat one of those one ones to like push damage if you've got some sort of game plan that can support that 100% looking at stuff like Caprador plus Divine Arrow or Shredded Sails in a failed cycling deck or a deck that just like has a cycling package now like that is pretty big game you turn your Caprador into a five seven flyer with a Shredded Sails or a Divine Arrow yeah, I mean, you need ways to do powerful things when you don't have a focus deck, and that is a powerful thing you can do. Mm -hmm. I think you mentioned this, but mentors plus the cheap creatures that already have that type. So that's when the mentors are good, right? If you've got four glimmer bells in your deck, you really want a wingspan mentor. Or if you've got some main servals and Moscow Goryax, that's when Keensight mentor starts to get good. Yeah, and the difference between three mana and two mana as the activation, I think, is the real tiebreaker here. And the prevalence of that keyword, which is why, again, if you're thinking about that Venn diagram, Keyed Sight Mentor is the best of the bunch because not only is a 1-4 body for 3 okay, it's a cheap activation of 2 mana and there's a lot of Vigilance stuff. Like the Duskfang Mentor, the black one with life gain, is also 2 mana to activate. There's just not a lot of lifelink floating around, right? There's like boot nipper is sort of the best thing to think about, but you really want that on death touch most of the time. Right. Well, and vigilance just like naturally wants to clog the board and dirtle around while you have time to activate your keen sight mentor. Escape protocol plus sleeper dart. This is really cute. I haven't done this yet, but I heard that Sam Black was doing a coaching on stream and he, his student drafted a cycling deck with three darts and escape protocol, which is pretty spicy. Yeah. Porcuparrot is secretly, you know, sort of a red, black or a red, blue gold card, you know, along with Boot Nipper and Glimmer Bell and just is a machine gun. So if you can get that pocket going, very powerful. Forbidden Friendship plus Cloud Piercer is a great curve in red decks, you know, Friendship on two and then Cloud Piercer on four mutated onto the one one dino. I just want to take a second to talk about why Forbidden Friendship is just fantastic in this format and it took me too long to get on board with feeling like two one ones weren't that exciting but outside of red cycling decks like every deck wants it red black sacrifice wants two bodies red blue wants human non-human for of one mind it wants a body to mutate onto leaves behind a one one to block it wants a spell in the yard they want the spell in the yard or yeah the ability to cast the spell whatever red white non-cycling is good with it because you have like a mutate package so again you're putting a vulpakeet on it or whatever like it's just so so good in this format i love that card yep it really does a lot of work just a general tip here if you've got grim dancers and boot nippers they should go on lifelink way more than the average population is putting them on lifelink the number of times when i was playing on arena and my opponent played grim dancer and gave it death touch and menace and i breathed a sigh of relief <laughs> was just absurd yeah, that makes sense. Lurking Deadeye is pretty underrated in the Mardu Go Wide deck. So this is not only just a, a flash piece. Like whenever, once I have Whisper Squads, I'm looking for Lurking Deadeyes because when you have these expendable bodies, if you have one ones from Friendship or the one one from Bastion, if you've got something that is likely to make a chump attack or a chump block, and then you can use Lurking Deadeye to finish off that creature, that's a powerful synergy to look out for. And then lastly, you know, we talked about green a decent amount this episode. Honey Mammoth plus Fully Grown plus ram throughs can do some serious work as far as winning games of magic all right that's a great place to wrap us up there tons of information about a variety of topics yeah this was really fun to get to do like i 
I really appreciate when we do a deep dive on a streamlined stuff like companions or cycling, but just getting to vomit out all of our experiences and, and information and hearing where you're at and getting to talk about where I'm at is is really fun. Yes, yeah, nice little grab bag of of level up about the format. Thank you as always, Salty Pretzels, for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give that a listen. You can come check us out on Twitch and Twitter. I'm at twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware. Ben is at twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome. We're both under those same usernames on Twitter. You can tweet at the podcast at Lords of Limited. And of course, all of that stuff is available through our website, lordsoflimited.com. If you have any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later. That's the five and a red six six that mutates for six, mm. and then whatever you said five and a, oh, said five and a red. Dang it! That's the whoa. That was all of it, all wrong. None of the above. <laughs> <laughs>